Welcome to Teleforum, a podcast of the Federal Society's practice groups. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federal Society. For exclusive access to live recordings of practice group Teleforum calls, become a Federal Society member today at fedsoc.org. Hello, and welcome to the Federal Society's webinar call. Today, November 8th, 2022, we host a post-oral argument courthouse steps on Michelle Cochran versus the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, which was argued just yesterday before the court. My name is Kayla Kleist, and I'm Assistant Director of Practice Groups here at the Federal Society. As always, please note that all expressions of opinion are those of the expert on today's call, as the Federal Society takes no position on any particular legal or public policy issues. In the interest of time, I'll keep my introduction of our speaker brief, but if you'd like to know more, you can access her full bio at fedsoc.org. Today, we are fortunate to have with us Ms. Margaret A. Little. Ms. Little is the Senior Counsel at the New Civil Liberties Alliance with over three decades of experience as a trial and appellate litigator representing both individuals and high-profile litigants in state and federal courts, including before the United States Supreme Court. She regularly speaks, blogs, and publishes on the topic of the constitutionality of various exercises of governmental power. Her work has been published by Law Reviews, Legal Publications, The Wall Street Journal, Law and Liberty, and the Manhattan Institute. Lastly, sorry, lastly, and perhaps most pertinent to this event, she has been tracking yesterday's hearings on Cochrane and now joins us to give her her breakdown and perspective on the, how those went and what we can perhaps expect as this case moves forward. One last thing. Throughout the panel, if you have any questions, please submit them through the question and answer feature so that our speaker will have access to them when we get to that portion of the day's webinar. With that, thank you for being with us today. Ms. Little, the floor is yours. Thank you, Kayla. I'm very happy to join you. Um, let me add that um, NCLA, the New Civil Liberties Alliance, where I'm senior litigation counsel, has represented Michelle Cochran since 2018. Uh, we also represented Ray Lucia after his Supreme Court win on the uh, SEC appointments of uh, ALJs uh, in the uh, Ninth Circuit, and we represented a gentleman called Christopher Gibson in the Eleventh Circuit. So we have a lot of background and experience with these issues on removal, and um, I'm happy to report that I think we had a good day in court at the Supreme Court yesterday. Uh, the issue, uh, for those of you who haven't been following these cases, is quite simple. It's whether the Securities and Exchange Act of 1934 strips federal district courts of jurisdiction to adjudicate structural constitutional claims challenging the SEC administrative proceedings and the ALJ's removal protections. What was striking at the, at the argument was there was an implicit assumption uh, by all nine justices that the dual tenure protection is unconstitutional. The actual issue there did not get much discussion and seemed to be um, conceded, although uh, the justices were not considering the merits. They were considering whether there is jurisdiction to address the merits of the claim. Uh, Justice Gorsuch landed some powerful points. Um, he uh, said early on in the argument, that the case for federal jurisdiction seemed clear and indisputable. And then he asked, what am I missing here? Uh, this was when he was um, in the Axon uh, argument, which is a related case. And he pointed out that the statutes require either a final order 
or um, in the case of the FTC, a rule, an order, a license or sanction or relief. And none of those were present in any of these cases. So we got off to a good start in, in the argument. Uh, and the discussion um, in SEC versus Cochrane, as well as um, FTC versus the Axon case, is, uh, is falls into really three large categories. First, does the statutory system strip federal courts of jurisdiction. And neither statute, neither the FTC statute nor the SEC statute, contains any language whatsoever that strips jurisdiction. In addition, um, Michelle Cochran was in a particularly good uh, posture because the um, statute that she was being prosecuted under, which is the 1934 Act's provision for administrative proceedings, um, not only has no uh, provision that strips jurisdiction, but it has a provision that makes it quite clear that nothing in the 34 Act takes away any existing jurisdiction um, in, in other uh, courts. So um, she had a very strong case, but the FTC also had a very strong case, and it appears that the, many of the justices agreed. Um, Free Enterprise Fund decided a case in 2010. And in that case, all nine justices agreed that um, federal court jurisdiction could be found to consider removal questions. Um, and that was unanimous. And then a less than unanimous holding of Free Enterprise Fund is that uh, you cannot have more than one layer of tenure protections um, under the same um, provision. So we had a strong case going in and certainly uh, the Axon company did as well. And this, the judges seem to agree with this. I'm quoting from uh, portions of the argument. Justice Roberts said, doesn't free enterprise stand as a pretty insurmountable barrier to your argument? He said, addressing Malcolm Stewart who argued for the government. Um, and uh, Justice Kagan expressed the same uh, uh, opinion that it appeared that free, this issue has already been decided by Free Enterprise Fund, or at least a strong case can be made for that. There's a second body of law that uh, gets considered in these cases, and that is um, a case called Thunder Basin and Elgin. For those of you who've taught toiled in these fields, you know that Thunder Basin is a pretty powerful um, obstacle to getting uh, matters out of administrative proceedings and into district court. Now, we had argued on behalf of Michelle Cochran that Thunder Basin was atextual and it should be uh, a matter of plain statutory construction under the 34 Act that you can go into district court just as the Supreme Court had held in 2010 in the Free Enterprise case. Um, Paul Clement, arguing for Axon, took a slightly different tact. He said, because Thunder Basin is there, because we satisfy all three, uh, uh, all three conditions for um, finding district court jurisdiction under, the free, under Thunder Basin, that they would win on that point. Um, it, it was kind of a nice conjunction in that uh, we argued statutory construction as our strongest argument. We agreed with uh, Mr. Clement that Michelle Cochran could also satisfy the three aspects of Thunder Basin. 
Uh, and uh, so it was, it was a situation where you had parties in very similar positions uh, arguing that you could win either way. Um, Thunder Basin has three elements that you have to uh, satisfy if you want to get into district court. You have to show that um, in the administrative uh, scheme with the administrative law judges that the issue you want to have decided in this case for the removal protection constitutionality is wholly collateral to the specific issues in the case. Secondly, you have to show that it is not something the agency expertise or competence was in, uh, could add to. And the third is whether the statutory scheme uh, deprives someone of meaningful judicial review. Uh, as I say, Paul Clement arguing for Axon uh, made a very powerful case that all three elements were satisfied. One new development at the argument was, uh, I think it was Justice Alito who, who said, well, do you have to satisfy all three aspects of Thunder Basin or is two or one sufficient? Uh, something to which no one really had an answer. And that explains uh, a great deal of why Justice Kavanaugh said um, that he had found that uh, Thunder Basin, in fact, was giving the lower courts lots of trouble. It would be nice to see Thunder Basin question. Indeed, one of the amicus uh, who filed in support of uh, Michelle Cochran made the case for why the court should have just abandoned the uh, Thunder Basin analysis because it was not helpful. Um, we argued on behalf of Michelle Cochran, and this was Greg Gar who presented the argument that um, the Thunder Basin case and Elgin really don't have anything to say about this kind of question because in both cases, the, the parties who were challenging the administrative proceeding were not challenging the ability of an administrative law judge to rule in their case because of improper removal protections. They, in the case of uh, Elgin, they just wanted to bring a constitutional claim also in federal court uh, and not exhaust the administrative process. And in Thunder Basin, it had to do with a mine posting uh, rule. And again, because that, that statute had uh, provided for administrative uh, proceedings for such posting uh, requirements um, that you would have to stay in the administrative proceeding before you could proceed to review in the circuit courts. Um, again, just to repeat the point, uh, the, the arguments we made is neither one of those cases tell you anything about what happens when you are challenging the removal protections of the adjudicator who should not be sitting in on your case at all. Um, in addition to Kavanaugh, Justice Kavanaugh saying that he had concerns with Thunder Basin, that it had not been helpful, uh, we think that between uh, Michelle Cochran's arguments and those made on behalf of um, uh, Axon, that the uh, parties were able to establish that not only uh, did um, the issue to be presented not fall within the agency's expertise, it didn't even fall, fall into their competence. And furthermore, the issue is wholly collateral. Doesn't matter what is at issue in the case, it, it matters, um, are you making a challenge to the structure of the agency itself, which is what we were doing. And finally, 
the idea that meaningful judicial review could occur after you've already suffered the constitutional harm, the here and now constitutional harm of going through uh, an administrative proceeding before a judge who does not have the power to rule in the case at all uh, is not meaningful judicial review. Um, so that moves us, uh, we have the statutory argument, which I tried to set forth, uh, the uh, case law argument. And then uh, what I actually think is the most powerful of all the arguments, which is just sheer logic. Here's what um, Justice Alito had to say on the logic. What sense does it make for a claim to, that goes to the very structure of the agency having to go through the administrative process? And he added, uh, in questioning uh, the government lawyer, isn't it in your interest to get this decided soon? This hang hangs over all, all of your proceedings. So he was making both an efficiency argument, but also um, that this is a issue ripe for decision by the Supreme Court. So we we're very glad to hear those observations. Justice Roberts put it in a somewhat different way. This is a series of cases that are in a, in a constellation around some fairly basic propositions. And to have people have to go over and over and over again does make the case about direct resolution of these claims pretty strong. Michelle Cochran, uh, in particular, had a very strong case because she had had an adjudication already in 2016 and uh, 2017. And then before her decision could become final, the Lucia case was decided, which meant her ALJ had not been properly appointed. So the SEC ordered her into a repeated proceeding. When they did so, uh, Michelle came to uh, NCLA and we filed a suit in district court saying, you know, she's already been through one of these proceedings. The SEC ALJs already have unconstitutional uh, removal protections, and um, uh, she should not have to go through these serial two repeated hearings. The court seems sympathetic uh, to that. Justice Thomas had a great uh, way of looking at this. He, he asked the government lawyer, what it, would it look like to have an ALJ decide these things? Because the, the uh, somewhat uh, irrational uh, view of the government about who should decide this and when is if you have to bring your case that the ALJ has on constitutional removal protections, what's the ALJ supposed to say? I'm sitting unconstitutionally. Uh, they're unlikely to do that. They're, uh, they have a implicit bias uh, that they, they shouldn't uh, rule in that way. And so, um, you know, the, I think the justice got the, um, the uh, illogic of that. Uh, Justice Thomas also asked how many years has this been going on? And that's an important question here because one of the things that we were able to establish and that in fact were, um, uh, we had amicus support on is how these cases, these administrative uh, proceedings can drag on. Michelle Cochran has been in administrative proceedings for six years. Ray Lucia was eight years, um, Christopher Gibson, seven years, George Jarkissi, seven years, uh, a guy out in the 10th Circuit, David Matt Bandemir, 10 years. And I think the justices seemed concerned that Americans were being tied up in these endless uh, reputation ruining, uh, resource draining uh, proceedings that go on far longer than an average federal court proceeding. Um, 
the uh, government did a, an odd thing to uh, the government lawyer. When he was asked about many of these concepts, he, he dragged out an APA claim uh, that said, well, sort of by implicit uh, uh, reasoning that you should have to go through the APA proceeding first. Now, that case, that issue was never argued by the SEC below in the Cochrane case. It was in the Axon case, but he just did not make a compelling um, case for that. In fact, uh, if I can find the language here, um, <laughs> Justice Gorsuch said, I just want to make sure I understand. Um, 28 U.S. Code 1331 which is the provision of the U.S. Code that grants jurisdiction to district courts to hear constitutional claims. Um, and, and we have jurisdiction under that. The FTC Act grants jurisdiction to courts of appeals for cease and desist orders. The SEC grants jurisdiction to courts of appeals for final orders. There is no withdrawing of jurisdiction anywhere in those statutes. And now you're asking us to turn to the APA to discern that. Is that correct? So that was a, a fun exchange. Um, the, uh, there was some arguments uh, you know, on the other side. Uh, I think Justice Sotomayor and Justice Jackson uh, did the bulk of the questioning on that. And both were concerned with the idea that you um, uh, the people who are in these administrative proceedings shouldn't be able to uh, escape out from under the proceedings by bringing just any old constitutional claim in the federal courts. Uh, the questioning didn't seem to be getting um, a lot of satisfactory answers on that. One of the things Paul Clement argued effectively was, well, um, you know, it's true that these removal protections uh, should be heard in federal district court. But say an agency decided that uh, you, in their administrative proceedings, you would not be able to call witnesses to testify on your own behalf. And his remark to the court is, wouldn't you want district courts to have jurisdiction of a claim like that? And there didn't seem to be much pushback on that as well. Um, so the... Uh, we feel, uh, as I say, that the uh, justices did a good job of stripping down the issues to their essences and whether it's a matter of statutory uh, interpretation of the S FTC Act or the SEC Act or whether it's a, how you apply the factors in, in Thunder Basin or whether you hold uh, these cases to the rules set forth in the Free Enterprise Fund, which is uh, the rule of decision both on jurisdiction, which was unanimous, and also the merits, um, which uh, says you cannot have more than one layer of tenure protection. Um, another good argument made by Paul Clement was uh, on the Collins severance issue is that, um, you know, what you really can't have is courts or agencies saying, well, okay, there are more than one layer, so let's strip the, the tenure protections under uh, Title V, Section 7521, which is the Merit Systems Protection Board uh, uh, tenure uh, protection, because that's a, under an entirely different title. It's um, not something that's under Title 15 for the securities law or the FTC Act. 
and to have either an agency or a court uh, reach out and try to sever a provision of um, Title V is pretty clearly beyond the purview of any adjudicator. Um, one difference uh, that is important to these cases is that in the Lucia case, that was an appointments defect. And in fact, um, uh, that was something that the SEC uh, could cure. So after the Lucia decision was handed down, it appointed a, the commission made formal appointments of its ALJs, or so they tell us, and um, then assign all of the cases for retrial. Here, where you have multiple layers of tenure protection, whether it be the, um, uh, the Merit Systems Protection Board or the ALJs um, uh, protection under their, uh, their assignment to whatever agency they're in or the, the commissioners, uh, own tenure protections. Uh, you just have way too many layers of tenure protection here. So um, those are some of the highlights of the argument. Uh, I don't think the uh, Mr. Stewart had a great day in court. I think there were a lot of questions about uh, the cases that he uh, did not have good responses to. Um, whether it be on the statutory interpretation, whether it's be, it be how you apply Thunder Basin, or whether it be uh, the logical um, uh, argument that it's just simply irrational to force people to go through administrative proceedings and then go to a circuit court to challenge them only to find that the whole procedure they had gone through is unconstitutional. One of the helpful things, although it did not come up much at argument, is that we have a poster child uh, for what the world looks like when you have to do that. And that's George Jarkissi. And most people attending this event will be familiar with that case. But for those who aren't, uh, Mr. Jarkissi first tried to get into district court in 2015. And he was denied that relief, even though he had some constitutional claims, due process claims. Uh, so he had to go through the entire administrative process, which took seven years. He took his case to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals and in a decision that has caught the attention of most people, uh, the Fifth Circuit ruled, uh, his panel ruled that two to one, that he had been denied his uh, jury trial rights, uh, Seventh Amendment jury trial rights by the administrative proceeding. Uh, he had also uh, been adjudged by someone who had too many tenure protections and also that the decision whether to charge him in uh, uh, administrative proceedings or in federal courts uh, violated the non-delegation clause. So we have an ex a strong example of what it, the world looks like if someone is forced to go through this and, and what comes out of that understanding is that he's gone through seven years of a, uh, a very uh, draining process that now has to be set aside altogether. Uh, I think uh, the court is, is it's at least several members of the court, uh, including Justice Alito, the Chief Justice, uh, Justice Kavanaugh, um, and Justice Thomas all seem to understand that we can't let these cases just fester and sit around without getting the issue of whether the ALJ um, proceedings are constitutional. And we should not put people through those proceedings that are very extended and, and very uh, 
biased. Um, the rules of civil procedure do not apply. The rules of uh, evidence do not apply. Very often, the uh, presumptions of innocence are reversed, and they the ALJs put the burden on the um, respondent to show why the SEC does not have a claim against them. Uh, and then the review is um, in, in these statutes is you, you get your ALJ opinion and then it gets reviewed by the commission, which is the very organization that voted to charge you in the first place. So uh, I think this is a uh, case that has the potential to make a serious inroads as to whether there should be administrative adjudication at all. Um, and I don't have too much more to say. I'm happy, I think I have one uh, question. As, as the justices said, um, this is actually a pretty simple case. And I'll, I'll share one uh, moment of jocularity. Uh, <laughs> uh, Justice Gorsuch said, well, isn't this simplistic? And uh, Paul Clement said, no, uh, I, th I think uh, straightforward is a better word, if you want. And then they decided to agree that perhaps textual was the best uh, word to use for that. So let me go to the Q&A here. Um, Shayla, do you want to ask me some questions? Absolutely. Uh, so our first question comes from Paul Avalar. He's asked, given the logic questions in the recent Carvey-Saul decision, are there any chances we see something more forceful against administrative exhaustion when constitutional rights are at issue? Um, based on what I was heard yesterday, the answer to that is yes. I think the justices are waking up to the fact that um, and this is, by the way, a holding of free enterprise fund that agencies lack competence to decide constitutional questions uh, for a proposition that seems to me it should have been obvious to the lower courts that had been ruling otherwise, um, but, but weren't. When, when this argument was made, there were seven circuits that said you had to go through the administrative exhaustion and only one circuit court decision, that's the en banc in Cochran, uh, had ruled otherwise. Okay, uh, our next question comes from Carl Schneider. Are you aware of any legislative efforts to deal with the timeliness of a challenge to the ALJ? Was failed legislation discussed? No, there was no discussion of failed uh, legislation. The only um, legislation, le legislative effort I'm uh, somewhat familiar with is several years ago, uh, there was some proposed legislation that essentially said, well, now the SEC has the option of charging you in district court or in administrative proceedings, and the legislation uh, would have given the respondents in the administrative proceeding the right to essentially remove the case to federal court so that they would have the same um, option as to where their case would be heard. That legislation did not pass. Uh, James Kusick asks uh, regarding Justice Thomas's question, isn't the point not just that an ALJ is unlikely to hold, given human nature, uh, that he lacks constitutional authority, but that arguably such a holding would itself lack authority um, based on the fact that if an ALJ lacks authority, then they don't have the authority to hold they lack authority, if, if that circle makes sense? You said it. <laughs> I mean, that that is the... Um the strange logic. And, and interestingly enough, in the FTC case, and, and also a case I'm aware of in the DEA, 
a few uh, administrative law judges admitted, hey, you know, this, this goes to my own capacity to sit. I can't decide this question. Uh, I'm uh, holding them that I'm sure aggravated their, um, <laughs> the people they report to, but they're right. Uh, you know, even, even setting aside the competence issue to, to decide a constitutional question, there's a, a bias in self-interest that's uh, as plain as the nose on your face that uh, a judge can't be the judge in his own case. Fair enough. Um, I have a question as we have more coming in through the question and answer feature. Uh, what are the, you, you just discuss this a little bit, um, but what are the implications of this case if the court finds in Ms. Cochran's favor? Um, what will change regarding lower courts and ALJ's jurisdiction? And are there any cases pending or precedents of which you're aware uh, that would be affected or possibly overturned? Um, well, I think uh, the Jarkasi case is the next case out there that uh, is going to get a lot of attention. And again, to remind you of what happened in Jarkasi is that the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals a panel held two to one that uh, Mr. Jarkasi had been denied his jury trial rights, also that his ALJ had too many removal protections, and finally the non-delegation issue. Uh, the most recent activity in that case is that the Fifth Circuit uh, declined uh, to re review that on banc. So the next thing up is with whether the SEC will petition for certification on that. Um, and, you know, I don't have a crystal ball, uh, but um, it would seem likely that the SEC would not be happy leaving that, uh, that decision un unappealed. Okay. Uh, question from Tom Palmer. Uh, he notes he's not a lawyer, but asks, what would the world look like without an administrative state? Or is that no one's arguing for that in this case? Would these judgments default to law enforcement? Okay. Well, first of all, we are not arguing, in, uh, certainly on behalf of Michelle Car Cochran, nor is anyone else in the Axon case arguing that there shouldn't be an administrative state. Administrative agencies um, have been around for a long time. There are things they can lawfully do, but... Um, it is certainly NCLA's position that adjudication is not one of those things. And that's because it's the government bringing a case against you that might deprive you of your reputation, your livelihood, your assets. Um, and uh, that should be brought in a separate branch of government uh, where the, the uh, adjudicating branch of government can be uh, decided in federal courts. Uh, it the flood we call this the floodgates argument that did come up an argument uh, not a lot but it, there was some concern from justices Jackson and Sotomayor about well you know how do we uh, discern what is a, a good a constitutional claim that really should go to court from one that's just uh, strategic on the part of the respondent to try to get out from under the administrative proceeding and um, it was discussed at argument that. In fact, the uh, one way the courts can do this, I believe it was Justice Kavanaugh, is that they can apply the standards um, for preliminary injunctions. So the, uh, uh, which is what you would want in, in, in such a case. Um, and if you could make a case of life, likelihood of success on the merits and irreparable harm, et cetera, then that 
kind of thing, which is what courts do every day, it would be a very effective mechanism to weed out meritorious constitutional claims from those that are just strategic and designed to avoid or do an end run around the administrative process. Got it. Um, next question comes from Greg Childers. Uh, do you think there is the federal courts want to perform more agency adjudication? <laughs> Depends on the judge, for sure. I will say this. I think one of the problems uh, has been, and I use the term deference here, not in the sort of Chevron sense, but just in sort of a general attitude of deference, is that for decades now, courts are very used to deferring to administrative agencies, whether it be, you know, Chevron or Stinson or our deference or, you know, give it, I think we've counted up to something like 16 different names for deference to courts. Uh, but also that courts are very used to, uh, if there's some sort of administrative process that will resolve the case without the court having to get to it, I think there's a natural tendency for courts to want to defer to that uh, process and require administrative uh, exhaustion. But I think many judges are, including several appellate judges in the Fifth Circuit and even Michelle Cochran's trial court judge held that uh, he was deeply concerned with the fact that she has already been one through, put through one very long extended proceeding and, and was probably poised to go through a second one that would be set aside and that these rounds of repeated adjudications really can't be tolerated. So I think uh, both through the mechanisms and way, in the way these cases have come to the court's attention and, and a lot of scholarship, uh, including that of Philip Hamburger, which gets quoted in the um, Cochrane decision and, and quoted in several other decisions in this field, there's a newfound concern with what people are doing. Finally, I would say uh, that people um, uh, assume that, you know, this, this whole world of administrative adjudication might collapse under these, uh, these decisions. And, and that's really not, not a, shouldn't be a matter of concern. There's five SEC ALJs. The FTC has one. Um, I think the CFTC, if I remember, uh, had one or two at most. And most of administrative law judges are social security judges. And that's a completely different situation because you, what, what a social security person is doing is they're going to the government asking for a benefit. And the judge is making a very simple decision. Do you qualify for this benefit? But in these enforcement actions, the SEC or the FTC is bringing the power of the government to bear upon you in the way that is only done in federal courts uh, in civil or criminal trials. And these, these penalties can be life-destroying, reputation-destroying. Uh, they uh, uh, carry huge monster fines sometimes. Uh, I, I believe a study uh, that the, has been cited by the Chamber of Commerce showed that the average cost of defending an SEC claim is well over a million dollars. And most people just don't have those resources. And so uh, all that would need to be done if the courts decide, as I hope they will decide, is that if you have a jury trial right or a right to be tried, by a judge who is not so insulated from removal, um, that you should just go to 
the um, federal district courts. We're talking about appointing maybe a hundred or slightly more new district judges if the workload is the consideration. And that's not a high price to pay at all for protecting people's constitutional rights. I think there would be I mean, people are dying to become federal judges, and uh, that would then ensure that people are tried in the courts which have jurisdiction to hear them, in which they have the constitutional protections of the government carrying the burden of proof, the federal rules of evidence and civil procedure, uh, jury trial rights, and all of the really uh, essential safeguards for keeping adjudication in separate branch of government. Thank you. And I think that answer ties into the next two questions. The first of which comes from Eileen O'Connor, who says, thank you for providing the context and background for the Cochrane and Jercasey cases. Uh, regarding those people, have they been able to earn a living while these cases have been proceeding through the courts? Um, well, um, we just did an event at, uh, at uh, NCLA and it's a, a podcast. So what I, here's what I can tell you. Um, Michelle Cochran, uh, when the, she was served with the SEC client, was in a job she loved. And when she was charged by the SEC, she went to the uh, appropriate person and said, you know, these are the charges. I know I can defend against them. And, um, and because she was a CPA uh, working for a firm that did um, SEC type work, she, she was fired for just being charged. Um, and uh, Ray Lucia, who also was represented by uh, NCLA, uh, can't get a job as a school teacher because they'll do a background check and find that you've been charged by the SEC. So, uh, and George Jarkissi, um, I believe he's worked, but he can't get financing because no bank will lend him money. And uh, he's very res restricted in what he's able to do. And there's not one of these people that does not have a story that this is life altering. Our next question comes from James McNamee. He asks whether there's a movement to limit administrative judges to a maximum of one year to decide, and then if that doesn't work, allow the defendant to go to district court. Um, well, <laughs> that, that movement would need to include some sort of penalty if the uh, commission does not decide in a timely manner, because one of the points we, we make, and in fact was in the Cochrane case, was that the SEC, their rules, they have to rule within a certain time. I believe it's something like 360 some days um, under their own rules. And they just grant themselves extensions. There are something like uh, a couple dozen cases, I think, maybe maybe somewhat less than that, of cases where there have been serial extensions by the commission of its own time to to rule. So, if you wanted to have such a uh, system, uh, you, you better figure out a way to make the SEC or the FTC comply with their own deadlines because they don't. And one of that's one of the terrible asymmetries of this system is that um, the rules uh, get extended for the SEC, whereas, you know, uh, the Lord help the respondent who misses a deadline or they are held to them, the SEC and, and the agencies are not. I would add one more thing. I, I don't know that I would like a rule that where um, there was a one year 
time to decision or otherwise you go to court because that exposes you to two separate hearings. And one of the things that was really clearly thought through and expressed in the en banc decision at the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals below was um, the, uh, the idea that somehow it was more efficient or fast to go through agency proceedings is um, a, a fiction. In fact, it just prolongs everything. You have to go through, you know, years and years of, of proceedings. Um, we had a really good amicus uh, written by Citizens United in this case, and they make this uh, important argument that it's a little complex, but it's, it's worth understanding. The agency has years to investigate, and they do for years, and that's, they can gather tons of documents, tons of evidence. Then they charge you. You've got sometimes as little as 60, 90, maybe 120 days to respond and be ready to defend yourself. When it's a large case, they just do this document dump and it's impossible for you to prepare an effective defense. So you have your hearing. And again, in this hearing, uh, you're very limited uh, in your ability to call witnesses. There are um, sometimes no de depositions that are permitted. So preparing to defend on the case is, is very hamstrung and constrained. And then the, the uh, ALJ hears your case, and then he can sit on that for years before deciding. So all of the all of the timing uh, decisions and how this proceeds works against the respondent and in favor of the commission. It would be kind of like a, uh, a federal district court that said, well, okay, um, you, the uh, defendant, have some very strict, short deadlines and you better comply. And you, the government, you know, file for an extension, you get it. Um, and, and no one would tolerate that in federal district court. And the fact that uh, that goes on in the administrative proceedings is a disgrace. Our next question comes from John Scheller. Uh, he asks, how would this ruling affect various employment agencies such as NLRB, DOL, EEOC, et cetera? And I'll add, if you could answer that for both sides, either way it's ruled. Okay, well, let's say um, the court decides that you have to go undergo uh, exhaustion. You can't go to federal court. I think that's pretty much the status quo so that whatever goes on in those agencies wouldn't change. I do wanna say that these um, proceedings um, are very agency specific. For example, as I explained earlier, the SEC had a, a jurisdiction preserving statute. The FTC didn't, but neither one of them had a jurisdiction stripping statute. And the agencies have individualized rules about um, you know, how long you have to respond to a complaint or um, how long the administrative proceeding goes on, whether there are sort of, um, I guess I would call them junior varsity versions of discovery rights or depositions that you can take a few, but not very many. Um, all of those differ from one agency to the next. Um, and so um, I can't tell you exactly how that would operate. Now, let's say that uh, Axon and Cochran win here. I think uh, that's, a that's a huge problem. And the reason why is the tenure protections are all statutory. Unlike in the Lucia case, 
where you had uh, an appointments problem that could be fixed by the agency. Here you have a removal problem that cannot be fixed. One of the things we were very happy to hear yesterday is um, the, the issue came up because in the Collins case, uh, the, there was a finding that the removal protections were improper, but uh, the decision essentially said, well, you know, no harm, no foul, harmless error, or you got to show how your decision would have differed had they not had those removal protections. And the court seemed very, uh, very receptive to the important argument. Well, if that's going to be how it turns out when you find out you have an unconstitutional judge, you darn well better figure out that early before the proceeding takes place so you don't have to do this uh, backward look at a proceeding that was flawed from the beginning and decide whether the defect actually harmed you. Got it. Our next question comes from Dylan Burke. Uh, he notes the dissent in Jarkazy argued that Congress actually did provide guidance that fraud cases can be decided in either of two ways and an Article Three court or administrative proceedings, and therefore there were no non-delegation problems. And he asks, what is the correct way to interpret the intelligible principle standard? <laughs> well, I have written before that the intelligible principles standard is neither intelligent nor principled. So <laughs> that's my view. Uh, but I, I think that's, um, you know, in a problem in these cases, because usually the intelligible uh, principle, it can be as vague as, you know, to regulate in the public interest, uh, which is one of the case uh, citations from the uh, Supreme Court that, you know, a standard that um, Bag is, is sufficient to give agency power. So, uh, you know, again, it would depend on what the intelligible principle is uh, in the specific agency um, on, on the non-delegation claims. I, I will say this, I candidly, I think that the non-delegation um, claim in Jarkovsky is going to be the hardest one for them to prevail on. But that's not that it's so much a bad claim. It's just that nobody has won a non-delegation uh, case since, uh, <laughs> since I think 70 years or something like that. Uh, and uh, in Gundy, which was the Supreme Court's last um, serious non-delegation uh, case, there seemed to be a receptiveness on the part of the court to hear non-delegation claims. Uh, Justice Alito was certainly not ready to hear uh, that in that particular case, which involved a uh, unfortunately pretty sorted uh, sex offender registry uh, defendant. But um, I do think the courts are willing to start taking harder looks at the non-delegation uh, cases and that uh, the people who want to preserve such schemes probably need to have a pretty strong argument of why there's an intelligible principle to, to guide the agency action on that. Great. Our next question comes from Dennis Chapman. He asks, has there been any consideration of pulling ALJs out of agencies and standing up a separate court for administrative matters along the lines of a court of claims or bankruptcy courts? Um, I, you know, I'm a practitioner, not uh, an academic. I believe there's some ac academic uh, literature on that. And that certainly would be one way to set things up. And it is, it is true 
that Congress uh, does have the right to determine jurisdiction of the federal court. So if Congress decided that some kind of system like that uh, would work, it could try it. I will say this, uh, a very important study, this is a government study, a GAO study of the patent judges uh, showed that patent judges admitted to a very high percentage uh, rate of feeling pressured to change their decisions to um, conform with the administrative uh, people overseeing them. And that's a troubling uh, report. It comes from the government itself. And so I think setting up separate courts as the patent courts are set up uh, doesn't really solve the problem and uh, could, in fact, make it worse. Got it. Well, our next question comes from Jerry Cox, who asks if there's a statute of limitations barring enforcement of civil penalty orders five years after the alleged violation. Yeah, the statute of limitations question is uh, really interesting. Normally, it's a five-year one. That's sort of the default statute. Of, uh, I think there are statutes, statutes of limitations that are um, shorter um, if, if it, the statute provides for one. Um, and uh, the problem is that when these people go get charged in the unconstitutional proceedings, the general rule of thumb is even if it's set aside or vacated, you can't just escape the charges um, because the decision got reversed. And that's the general rule in courts as well. If you get charged um, criminally or civilly in, in federal courts, and then there's a appeal and then that decision gets reversed, um, it, unless it's utterly uh, uh decisive of the case, very often you have to go back and be retried. So I think there's a uh, you know body of law that provides that statutes of limitations, as long as the original action was brought with in, within the time, um, that uh, you, you really can't make a successful argument that on remand, your case should be dismissed because it got restarted too late. That's too bad um, because what happens and this is what I call the big lie. Uh, and it was a, some testimony by Andrew Ceresny, who was then the SEC enforcement director. He, he testified that, you know, well, yes, you don't have the same procedural uh, and uh, legal protections in administrative proceedings, but they go faster. And getting those cases uh, decided more quickly is important because uh, the witnesses' memories fade, the documents are that you once thought you could get are unavailable. Well, I represent uh, Michelle Cochran, and I can tell you that she has virtually no hope that the documents she could use to uh, defend herself even exist anymore. Uh, she, the, the events that she's been charged with go back to 2010 through 2013. Uh, key witnesses are likely unavailable. And so this idea that they can reverse your case, in her case, twice, and go back and have a brand new, totally fair, fair trial, whether it be in her case, it would have to be either in federal district court or before the commission. Her ability to defend herself has been seriously compromised by the passage of time. And so the, the idea that these administrative proceedings are swifter is an illusion. I might also add, that the idea that the judges are experts is also an illusion. 
one of the things that I uh, put into a the amicus brief in the Lucia case back in 2018, did some research on the backgrounds of all the SEC ALJs. Not one of them had any background in securities law whatsoever. Most of them came from the Social Security Division. I believe one came from the FCC and was a uh, communications, had a communications background. That's pretty um, frightening, <laughs> number one, that they are not familiar with the area of law. Um, but it's also, uh, it just, the, the language we put in our amicus brief was the expertise emperor has no clothes. So, you know, so many arguments were made um, in the early days of the administrative uh, state that we were turning our government over to experts. That's not the case. These, these, um, these ALJs do not have a background in securities law. And I will say a review of their decisions uh, suggests uh, that that impairs uh, their ability to fairly rule in these cases. Okay. Well, barring any last minute questions that come in, uh, I have a last question for you. Uh, do you have a read, even a general or unsolidified one, on how this case may be ruled? I know you have a hope for how it may be ruled, but do you have a, a specific well, on how it may court. be? And then what the breakout of the court might be? Yeah, I'm not a, a professional court watcher. There are wonderful ones um, out there, and they they read every decision, and they they you know can predict usually with great accuracy, uh, how the uh, case goes. Let me just say this, the, the hostile questioning uh, came from uh, Justice Jackson and Justice Sotomayor, who, who seem more inclined to be concerned about agencies uh, being able to retain what has been uh, their jurisdiction over these things. Uh, Justice Kagan is also a potential uh, uh, vote uh, uh, against uh, Cochrane and Axon. But I will say from her, her questioning, and she's also uh, knowledgeable about administrative law, uh, she seemed to at least ask questions that were consistent with thinking the Free Enterprise Fund decided this case. And um, that uh, the other comment she made, which was a lot of fun um, on Thunder Basin, um, the government's brief. Uh, and again, I briefed this in, in uh, California, Texas, uh, in the 11th Circuit on an initial petition to the Supreme Court, and then all the way through the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals through en banc. Uh, <laughs> and uh, the, the government was always arguing Thunder Basin is going to win this case, right? Well, in their brief in this case, it does not even show up till page 51. So Justice Kagan says an argument. I was surprised to see <laughs> that a Thunder Basin doesn't even show up in your in your brief until page fifty one, and then she says to uh, the uh, to Mr. Stewart, "Are you afraid of losing on Thunder Basin?" So that was a surprising question. It uh, certainly elicited <laughs> uh, some you know quiet amusement in the court, uh, and uh, I would say that based upon her questioning. I don't see Justice Kagan um, as a dissent, as a sure dissent. Let me just put it that way. So um, let me say we're hoping for 6-3, um, but 7-2 is not out of uh, reach 
if, if the questioning and oral argument is any indication. Okay, well, thank you. Um, I'm gonna wrap us here. I know it's a couple minutes early, but I will give you back three and a half minutes of your time. Um, on behalf of the Federalist Society, I wanna thank you, Ms. Little, for the benefit of your time and our audience for joining and participating. Uh, we welcome listener feedback at info at fed-soc.org. And as always, please keep an eye on your our website and your emails for announcements about upcoming virtual events. With that, thank you all for joining us today. We're adjourned. Thank you for listening to this episode of Teleform, a podcast of the Federalist Society's practice groups. For more information about the Federalist Society, the practice groups, and to become a Federalist Society member, please visit our website at fedsoc.org.